listeners, welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. This is Kara Kandel here with my intrepid co-host, the wonderful Gerard Robinson, and we are coming to you, um, we'll be recording this podcast on the day before the 2020 presidential debate. Now, Gerard, I don't want to talk politics with you, I'm not going to get into like what we expect of the different candidates, but I want to know what do you think it would feel like? to debate to an empty room. <laughs> what do you think? We're, it's going to be so weird. I don't care who you are, right? To like be having this debate. Are they going to be masked? Will they? Will one come out on stage in a mask and another won't? Like, what, what do you think we can expect? I'm on the edge of my seat here. I expect fireworks just because of Trump's style. He could be in a casket and it would still be interesting. So no one being present, no mask, that would make a difference. He's, uh, I think Newt Gingrich said he's uh, one-third Andrew Jackson, one-third P.T. Barnum, and there's another third, but the P.T. Barnum is the showman stuff. So it'll be interesting, and, you know, Chris Wallace has already uh, laid out the six themes he's going to cover, and, you know, really education is in every single one of them whether there's a link to education. Whether they actually name it or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But I, I look forward to some good uh, good fireworks. We'll see. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to have to record it. I can't stay up that late, Gerard. It's too much for this old lady. I can't handle it. <laughs> but I'll be I'll be looking for the debriefs um, tomorrow. And I'm sure, actually, my husband usually wakes me up to give me good nuggets. And then I, tell, I, I get angry with him. But um, so, and we're, you know, this is really cool because our guest today, Brenda Wample, has, um, has written, well, she's written a lot of books. But we're going to talk to her about one book in particular, The Impeachers, which um, just you know, I think that I'm really interested to hear what she sees or doesn't see in terms of connections to the current moment. Um, so yet another phenomenal guest we have coming up on the learning curve. But before we get there, we, of course, have stories of the week. And um, mine, I'm I'm taking it from a little north of here. We're talking about New Hampshire today. And we're not talking about um, anything Espinosa-related, as we have been for the past few months. But there is another case. The New Hampshire Supreme Court heard arguments uh, last Thursday in its latest case, and as our good friend Jamie Gass was just telling me, this is one and it's just like a series of cases that happens all the time, about whether its state is meeting the constitutional obligation to pay for an adequate education. So that word adequate, I don't have to tell you, is a, buzz, is a buzzword for um, how we have come to talk about mm-hmm. school funding and school reform, right? So we used to talk about um, like if equal education, like, can we make everybody equal? Can we put in equal amounts of money and get equal outputs? We found that that didn't work so well. And for the past 20 years or so, we've been talking in terms of our states doing enough to sort of provide every kid in the state with this baseline acceptable or adequate education. And so, you know, as we just, as I just said, this is an ongoing debate, in, not just in New Hampshire, in many places, but New Hampshire has a really um, interesting model compared to a lot of places. Uh, in a lot of states, we switch to a model where the state's really making up the difference in a lot of places, especially in communities that can't raise a lot of property taxes. And in New Hampshire, they're still very heavily reliant on the property tax. So this is going to be 
one to watch. Um, you know, we had your wife on a few months ago, um, the great Mrs. Robinson, talking about talking about her book and and a case coming up um, out of Detroit um, that is in fact about the human right to education, right? The right to be literate. So just a series of really interesting cases. I'm going to be watching this one for a couple reasons. Um, and the first is because I'm really curious as we pursue these conversations about what's going to happen to test-based accountability in the wake of COVID-19, um, you know, one of the reasons we've been able to sort of point to whether or not states or districts or others are doing well to serve all kids is by looking at sort of large-scale test score data. And and so I don't know. This one's really interesting because it always comes down to how much money is enough money. And, you know, half the time uh, one side's going to say there's no amount of money that's ever enough. And we know and some of us who read the research know that, yeah, you do need a good amount of money to, to fund schools well. But money isn't what always makes the difference. So, if, for example, Gerard, uh, the New Hampshire Department of Education say that districts spend about nineteen thousand dollars per pupil. And wow. so I, I don't know, adequate or inadequate. That's pretty high amount of money, I have to say. Anyhow, that's my story of the week. What do you got, my friend? So my story is further south in South Carolina, and this is from Zach Koski, and the title, South Carolina Charter School Enrollment Surges as COVID-19 Awakens Parents to Education Options. And this is interesting in part because North Carolina's had a charter law since 1996. Uh, as of 2017-18, and this data is coming from the National Alliance for the Charter Schools and our friend Nina, uh, you know, three years ago, they had 69, uh, you know, 69 charter schools, roughly 34,000 students. Well, you fast forward today, and they have uh, roughly 40,000 students enrolled in charter schools this week. And there's been an addition of 14,000 since last year. And they believe that the wow. numbers are going to soar because, you know, there's another 40,000 children whose parents could not immediately secure a seat in a charter school, and so they're added to the waiting list. So those who are in charge of authorizing charter schools basically see an increase of more than uh, 40% uh, by the time this semester wraps up. So here's a state with a lot of rural communities where virtual and in-person uh, makes sense for some families. It's a state, again, one of the early states, you know, your uh, state of uh, Massachusetts was one of the first five in the country but there was really little movement in uh, South Carolina for years. Lo and behold, this happens, and then now there's a big push. So here's an example of those who say that families aren't interested. They are. Here's an example of virtual making sense in the state uh, with not a lot, a lot of large urban districts. Yes, uh, there are places like that. And glad to see it because I've had a chance in, in the previous life to do some work in South Carolina and um, you know know the great work, uh, Senator Tim Scott's doing to advance public education in general, but also the concept of uh, parental options. And so good to hear a good story coming out of South Carolina, because often when we talk education in South Carolina, it's always about the bad things. I'm glad to see that parents are awakening and doing some good things. Absolutely. And glad to see that. Um it's some positive talk about charter schools and charter school enrollment. And yes, nice shout out to our friends at the Alliance and to, and to Nina, um, because, you know, charter schools have been having a tough time as of lately, no matter what side of the aisle is talking. And so this is proof, right, that uh, 
that when parents talk, when parents choose, <laughs> we we need to hear them. We need to listen and you know to them. Now that I think about it, you mentioned the adequacy suit. Also, I want to give a shout out to Jeannie Allen at the Center for Education Reform. Mm -hmm. She gives South Carolina a B in her national rankings, and you know she's a tough scorer, so good to see that. <laughs> she but is a tough scorer, that's she right. She is very tough on that, uh, but good. You know, if, well, Chris Wallace, this goes back to the debate tonight, but it also goes to your conversation about adequacy. You know, 1973 is when the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decided uh, that there was no federal right to education in the Rodriguez case, and we know that President Trump has a, a candidate uh, from the Seventh Circuit, Amy, who is up. You know, with this appointment, assuming it goes through and possibly one more appointment uh, for the next president within a four-year period, I really believe that one of the cases that, uh, well, the one that you talked about, but some of the others we've discussed on this show may in fact find its way up to the Supreme Court. So I think this adequacy issue is going to find itself back there one way or another in a very interesting way. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I couldn't agree more. And um, and it's an issue, right, that's been around for for a long time now and hasn't hasn't shifted um, in terms of like we haven't we've been using this word adequacy for a long time. So I think you're right. I think we're going to see more of these cases uh, winding their way up through the court and and hopefully with good result. So. All right. Coming up after this, I'm, I'm very excited for this conversation. As I mentioned at the outset, we're going to be talking to prolific author uh, Brenda Wineapple. And um, have a, I'm looking forward to this conversation about uh, Hawthorne and Andrew Johnson. All, all in once, listeners, you get it all here on The Learning Curve. We'll be back right after this. And we are back with Brenda Wineapple, author most recently of The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation, called Superbly Lyrical and a Landmark Study. It was selected by New York Times critic Jennifer Soleil as one of the 10 best books of 2019 and named one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2019. Wineapple is also the author of Ecstatic Nation, Confidence, Crisis, and Compromise, one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2013, which the Wall Street Journal hailed as magnificent. Among her other publications are White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Hawthorne, A Life, Sister, Brother, Gertrude and Leo Stein and Whitman Speaks, an edition of the poet's pithy observations about writing, literature, and America. The recipient of a literature award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, an American Council of Learned Societies Fellowship, and two National Endowment Fellowships in the Humanities, Wineapple recently received an NEH Public Scholars Award for the Impeachers. She regularly contributes to major publications such as the New York Times Book Review and the New York Review of Books and teaches in the MFA programs at Columbia and the New School. Well, we are certainly pleased to have her with us today, and that bio is well worth it because it gives us all a lot of reading to do if we haven't already done it. <laughs> Brenda Wineapple, welcome to The Learning Curve. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Kara. 
Well, we're really happy to have you with us today. Now, we could talk about uh, many of your works, but today we're going to focus on a couple in in your most recent work, which seems particularly relevant in in the current moment, I think. Um, But let's let's start. Um, We were just talking a bit about uh, Pioneer Institute being here in Massachusetts and our producer, Jamie, talking about having recently visited Salem. Um, Many of you, even those who are not in Massachusetts, will know the famous Salem Witch Trials, but um, this year marks the 170th anniversary. That's uh, wow! It's kind of hard to believe of the I publication know, of, I know. of Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, and you've written the definitive biography of Hawthorne. So let's talk a little bit about, if we can focus on Salem for a second, about sure. um, his growing up in Salem and um, having a notorious Puritan ancestor. How did that? How did that shape the Scarlet Letter, something which most of us are probably familiar with from high school, I would imagine? Right. I think people still read the Scarlet Letter in high school, and I've been in high school uh, talking about it. And um, it's amazing how much relevance it has for today, because after all, its heroine, Hester Prynne, is a single mother trying to bring up a kind of unruly child named Pearl. But you're right. Um, the, The book has a lot of resonance for Salem, even though it's set in Boston. And um, as you said, Salem is known for the witchcraft trials um, of the 17th century. But I will also notice, I'm from, note that I'm from New England, um, Boston, and my father was from Salem. So, you know, as a New Englander, and as you must know, um, we, we know a lot of our history and we often know family history. And you can just imagine what it was like for Hawthorne as a boy growing up, you know, in the early part of the 19th century uh, and aware that his forebear, John Hawthorne, was one of the judges of the witch, uh, you know, the Salem witchcraft trials. So it's, you know, it's a strange pedigree to have. I don't know uh, what the, you know, present day corollary was, but uh, would be you can sort of pick your most favorite unsavory person and say, well, how would you feel if that was your great grandfather? Um, so <laughs> Hawthorne had that, and we think of that as kind of baggage. But he also said that his Puritan ancestors, their spirit was very strong in him, um, and he would imagine them. <laughs> listen to this. They were, he would imagine them sitting over his shoulder and saying to him. Ooh, what are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they'd be looking at him, exactly. It was kind of like ghosts. He was haunted. You know, New Englanders are haunted. I'm haunted. Yeah, generally, um, yes. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and he would hear them, and they would be whispering in his ear, like, you know, the, the bad angel saying, what are you, a writer of storybooks? You know, what kind of business is that? You're supposed to be glorifying God or being serviceable. Um, why, you might as well be a fiddler. So you can imagine, you know, it's a kind of um, strange heritage, but it's, he felt it also, it kind of strengthened him in a way. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's um, complicated. It was complicated for him. One of the things that I, just as an aside, always find interesting about Hawthorne is that most people assume um, that he was alive during the witchcraft trials because he's so firmly and he so located himself, you know, with his Puritan mm-hmm. ancestors. But actually, when you think about it, this was amazing. 
he was alive at the same time as Abraham Lincoln, whom he actually met. Wow, he actually met Lincoln. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. I don't think most of us would put two and two together it, in that way. Exactly. So it's a little, you know, it's a little bit of both. He's both, you know, contemporary. Not that Lincoln's contemporary, but it comes up a lot more than, say, you know, hanging judges do. Um, so it, it's very interesting. He's a very interesting mix of, uh, the, you know, the modern, the contemporary, and the deep past, and, you know, American past, too, which is important. And, and, and what an image of him describing his ancestors sort of sitting on his shoulder that I actually, um, as I've said on this show before, I'm not native to New England, but that explains oh. a whole lot about New England <laughs> in, in, in many ways. I think, too, it must be phenomenal to have you as a speaker at a high school if one's reading this book in class, uh, add a lot of color to it and probably make it well, even it was more fun. Yeah, oh, it's so sorry to interrupt. It was fun for me, I have to say, because the students were very, very lively, and, and they brought a kind of passion to it that, you know, made the work come alive all over again. So it, it's interesting. Um, it's very, very interesting in this day and age. Is there a particular theme or question that, that students often have for you when, you when you talk with them about this book? Well, I think everyone circles around in some fashion or another Hester Prynne. She's the center of the book. She's the heroine. She's unusual. She's, you know, probably, you know, she looms over American literature because certainly there was nobody in American literature, not that there was that much American literature at the time, but there's nobody really like her, you know, and there are so few female characters that stand so um, tall, really, uh, when you think of, you know, what do you think of? You think of Moby Dick, maybe in a big whale, um, but you don't think <laughs> of lots of women. And, you know, so so she's really quite incredible. And as I said, she's a single mother. She's poised. She's smart. And um, she has to deal with a, a lot of the, oh, I don't know, the Puritans around her who scorn her and scold her. Uh, she has she's taken a lover. Uh, in the woods, which you're not supposed to do, uh, not just then, but anytime, because she's married. So, you know, she has a, she has a kind of rich past and a, a very, very complicated, rich personality. Um, and I think as a result, um, she is the character that appeals to people the most. And, of course, um, also students and, and everybody I find often when they read the book, they just hope that Hester and her lover, who is the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, they always hope that, you know, they'll take off together and, you know, live happily ever after. Mm. But uh, this is a spoiler alert, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we do like a tidy, a tidy ending, right? Yeah. Uh, which we yeah. don't get. But no, I, I can even think more recently of movies, probably in the past decade, mm -hmm. uh, modern adaptations of the of the Scarlet Letters. It's it's um, it's um, a story that that persists in the culture. Yeah. And as in listening to you speak, it occurs to me, you know, that these discussions of um, womanhood in America and what Hester Prynne perhaps represents to different people so relevant today, first of all, with the passing right of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the nomination yeah. of, of a new judge to the Supreme Court, who many are writing about as sort of different versions of feminism. It's, it's fascinating. Exactly. Um, yes, it's exactly right. 
Yeah, it's 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 a dialogue. We could probably talk about this for a very long time. I'm. What do you think, though, in Hawthorne? I'm always also fascinated, quite personally, um, when yeah. men can write compellingly about women or in the voice of women. Um, what do you think Hawthorne was trying to convey about womanhood in America at that time? And, and of course, there could be things we take away today too. But what what would you say he was trying to convey at that time? Well, I think he was. You know, he was. As I said before. I said he was complicated. I'd also say he was conflicted. You know, on the one hand, um, even though it seems like a long time ago, it was a kind of pre-feminist moment uh, in American culture. And there were a very, very um, strong women at the time. A little bit later, you have Susan B. Anthony, everybody knows. At that time, there was a woman named Margaret Fuller. Um, his own mother had been a, a a single mother, really, because his father had died uh, while uh, traveling. So that you have um, a sense of this woman as a kind of rebel. Um, but when you're a rebel, and perhaps this is you know something for today too, when you stand apart from society, when you oppose society and social norms, which we talk about, this also can be very lonely and very isolating. And so he was concerned, what I said about conflicted, he was also concerned with the cost that that rebellion uh, takes or exacts on the woman. Um, And so he, you know, he was able to imagine uh, what it was like, it seems to me, because um, I think he felt uh, to a certain extent like an outcast in his own time as well. And also because some of his, speaking of politics before, some of his politics were not like those of his neighbors, you know, particularly when he moved to Concord, Massachusetts. He just didn't see eye to eye with them, even though they were all friends. It was a time when many people, not all people, <laughs> could be friends, even though they were on different parts of the kind of political spectrum. You've done a magnificent job of weaving together some of the complexities of being human. Uh, you've done so in your work on Hawthorne, but we also know that you recently published a book. It's called The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. And even though in your earlier work you focused on Puritanism, about democracy, and understanding the American character, now can you discuss the similarities between the 17th century Salem Puritans and the proponents of impeachment during the 19th century? in terms of their zeal to condemn or shun those who wish to be publicly shamed or punished? Well, you know, it seems to me in the 19th century, and especially around the issue of impeachment, which um, what was surprising to me um, seemed like I, anyway, um, didn't know very much about. And a lot of people seem not to know much about Andrew Johnson and the first ever presidential impeachment. Um, And it seemed curious because um, it was almost as if the impeachment itself, the very act of um, a president being impeached, was itself shamed, um, something that people couldn't talk about and really didn't talk about even when um, Nixon was almost impeached and when Clinton was. Um, so it's fascinating. The, the Puritan heritage that you're speaking about did not really inform the impeachers so much as actually the um, abolition and anti-slavery movement, which was really very different because 
Europeans were a theocracy, and they really didn't believe in popular democracy. And the impeachers, um, who were Republicans, different from the Republicans today, um, they had been very active in the anti-slavery movement and really believed in founding a just society that would be um, open to all, black and white. So it's it's interesting, this whole idea of shaming. I think impeachment itself is what was shamed. Um, nobody was shaming Andrew Johnson. It took a long time to impeach him. Nobody really wanted to do it. I hope that helps. No, it did, because you're bringing in the aspects of um, the abolition movement, which, which we often forget, uh, played a very long uh, I was have there's a long history of that in, in shaping our, our our understanding of today. So let's yeah. go to another question. So President Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial uh, was the first against any president in our time. Presidents Clinton and, and Trump were impeached, while Nixon resigned right. under a cloud of impeachment. In fact, I right. remember watching that on television in Long Beach, California, in 1974, and my family trying wow. to figure out what was happening. But if we look at Johnson's 19th century impeachment and how it shaped America's understanding, you know, what does it say about what we think about holding chief executives accountable and how to use that process to remove them from office? Well, I, I think it says great things about a democracy that, that because I think what the impeachers were intent on um, saying to the republic was that no president can be or should be above the law and set, and I'll say himself because it's been all male so far, um, set himself above the law, and that the Constitution not only provides for, uh, you know, a careful and peaceful transfer of power, it provides the means, you know, and this, I guess, you can go to the 18th century, you know, the, the writers of the Constitution actually provided the means for removing a chief executive when he abused, he abused his power. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I found heartening and rather wonderful, even though impeachment worked, but Johnson was acquitted. But what was wonderful about it was that there were people of vision. They were really visionaries in many ways because they, they wanted, a, as I said, a just society that was open for all and to, enshrine the Declaration of Independence, you know, and so what they were able to do is push the impeachment forward um, to conform with the ideals that they thought, not only for the society, but really for why the war was fought. I mean, we had just come from a terrible civil war and the death of the president, and they wanted to make, um, to turn all of that um, horror and sadness and division into a victory for democracy, fairness, and equality. Yeah, here's something I'm thinking about. You know, we had Clinton and Trump impeached, mm -hmm. Nixon, 70s, mm -hmm. leaves. Is there something about the American character or our understanding of public punishment or shame that may make impeachments more likely today than in previous centuries? I don't really think so, because when you think about it, in the 20th century, only Trump and Clinton were impeached, no one else. Um, I remember that there were those, I think in Congress or out of it, who talked about impeaching uh, George Bush. That didn't happen. I, 
I don't know, but I would imagine other presidents offended people in certain ways, and there was talk about impeachment, but it really is a court of last resort. And and I think everybody understood that and understands that. It's just that when someone crosses a line, um, then in fact, a certain kind of line, then in fact, it seems necessary. Or, or it's interesting, uh, Trump and Clinton and Johnson were all impeached for very different reasons. Certainly, Clinton was impeached for reasons that were very much unlike uh, Johnson, say, because Johnson's involved the fate of the country, of democracy, and the meaning of the war. And as Charles Sumner, another Massachusetts uh, person, senator from Massachusetts, said, impeachment was really the last battle with slavery. And in fact, he was caned uh, by a South Carolina because of some of the uh, inflammatory things he had to say, at least in his opinion, about uh, slavery. Right, exactly. He was caned within an inch of his life. It's amazing he survived it while people looked on. So make no mistake, there was a, it was a divided time. Absolutely. Would you mind uh, reading a passage for us from your latest book? Not at all. I'm going to read um, the last paragraph, in fact, and I don't think it's a spoiler, um, but, um, and the only person I mentioned um, in this paragraph, just to set it up a little bit, is one of the impeachers named Thaddeus Stevens, originally a New Englander, I might add. Um, and this comes after, of course, the acquittal of Andrew Johnson. And so impeachment had not fully succeeded, as Thaddeus Stevens had ruefully admitted, But unless forgotten, it had not entirely failed. It demonstrated that the American president was not a king, that all actions have consequences, and that the national government conceived in hope with its checks and balances could maintain itself without waging war, even right after one, and that the national government could struggle to free itself from all vestiges of human oppression. It had not succeeded, but had had work. The impeachers had reduced the 17th president to a shadow, a shadow president. That is a president who did not cast a long shadow, although his regressive policies would. The impeachers had warned the country about these policies as best they could and offered to us clearly and without apology a cautionary tale. And they provided hope for an essential way Impeachment had accomplished what it had set out to do. It spoke beautifully and with farsighted imagination of the road not taken, but that could exist, the path toward a free country, a just country, a country and a people willing to learn from the past, not erase or repeat it, and create the fair future of which men and women still dream. Well, we can certainly understand after hearing you read that why this book has been called superbly lyrical. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. And, and so, um, so resonant at this moment, especially on the eve of we are recording this um, on, on the eve of the first 
presidential debates of 2020, which promises it's been an interesting year, an unprecedented year in many ways. It promises to be an unprecedented type of debate. Um, So we thank you so much, Brenda Wineapple, for being with us today and talking to us about just some of your work. And I think we'll have to have you back on again to try and get through the the long list of very interesting books that you have have written. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and your great questions. And it's nice to be with New Englanders again. Thank you. We, we appreciate having you. Please stay safe and healthy. And we are back. As always, we're going to close out this week's show with the tweet of the week. This week's tweet from Kathleen Hall Jameson via the Wall Street Journal talking about civics. Americans learn more about civics the hard way, it says. After a turbulent year, substantially more people can name government branches and rights protected by the First Amendment survey finds. So this is awesome because it's been a while since we've got to talk about something positive coming out of 2020. And here it is, slightly more people know something about civics. Um, When you actually look at the numbers, it's a little bit scary. Um, It's so 73% of survey responses, they were were asked to identify um, the, the, rights that we have, right? The the five basic rights. 73% of survey respondents correctly named freedom of speech as a First Amendment right. 73%. That is pretty good. But um, only 34% correctly listed the right to peaceably assemble. It's a jump, though. It's up from 10%. But the good news here is that folks can, more folks can name the three branches of government. Uh, What we're doing, if most folks can't name the three branches of government, I'm not sure. And um, we've got some rising interest in civics, in government, and in the way things work. And we'll be back next week with the beloved Professor Paul Peterson. Uh, many of you will know him. Henry Lee Shattuck, professor of government and director of the program on education policy and governance at Harvard University. So until then, Gerard, I will be waiting with bated breath for your reactions to last night's debate. Always something to talk about. Look forward to it. 